Well, if you have your Bibles, will you join me this morning in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Last week, if you recall, we talked about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. And then continuing, it doesn't just end there, but we continue to live in Jesus every day for the rest of our lives. Being rooted, remember? Rooted and, and built up in Christ, those oaks of righteousness we talked about. We talked about um, the circumcision of the sinful nature and how Jesus breaks the, the, the control and the power and the domination of the sinful nature over our life. So now we can be set free, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, to honor God, to serve Him, to live a holy life. Hmm. This morning, we have a marvelous uh, passage before us. It's going to talk about salvation. Hmm. It's going to talk about God's grace working in our lives, bringing us from death to life. It's going to talk about that which uh, declares us guilty being taken away and nailed to the cross. Hmm. We're going to see how the devil was disarmed and triumphed over by the Lord Jesus at the cross as well. So just, I mean, it's three verses, but it's just packed. Like all of this book of Colossians, I mean, we can't get big stretches, can we? Because it's just so meaty. There's so many wonderful things. So I commend to you the continual reading of the book of Colossians, chapter by chapter, throughout your days, throughout the weeks. As we go through this, you will be enriched. You will be blessed. So let's stand together out of reverence for God's holy word. And let us read our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 2. Starting at verse 13, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, starting in verse 13, as we go verse by verse through the Word of God, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ, and He forgave us all our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Huh? Thank you, Lord. It mentions here the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. We're going back before Christ. But verse 11 from last week talked about uh, Jesus circumcising us, putting off of the sinful nature, not by the hands of men, but by the hands of Jesus. So there was a spiritual thing that God did through Christ, that He broke that fleshly, sinful nature that, that controls us and rules us. Jesus breaks that, right? He circumcises, He cuts it away so we can be free from sin. Hmm. That we're not being ruled over by sin. Sin is not our master anymore, but Jesus is our master. Now we also learned last week, though, Jesus does this when we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Verse 6 from last week as well. But we have a part to play because though Jesus breaks the stronghold of sin over us, we have to then put certain things to death. We have to rid ourselves. If you go to chapter 3 of Colossians, look at verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's the sinful nature as a list of some of those things. Verse 8, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these and gives another list of the sinful things from the sinful nature. So Jesus breaks the stronghold of sin, but then tells us we got to confess it. we got to surrender all, all to him I freely give. Right? we got to give it up. we got to repent and turn from these things and let Jesus have all of us. Let the Holy Spirit fill us and sanctify us that we can live a holy life for Him. So now in verse 13, it's taking us back. Before we came to faith in Jesus, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. It's good to look back to see where we came from. 
to look and understand and be reminded of the truly desperate, desperate situation that we were in before Christ. Huh? The B.C. life. I remember when I first heard someone say that, well, yeah, that was B.C., you know, before Christ, right? <laughs> it's good. B.C., the, the before Christ life, it's good to look back and see, wow, that's where I was, and this is where God has brought me, and this is what he's done to save me. Because we were covered over with the sinful nature, and it ruled the heart and the mind. It ruled the attitudes and the actions. In the sinful nature, the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, dead in sins, we were very far from God. We were. We were inclined to evil, and that continually is the statement from the Church of the Nazarene on our articles of faith about the sinful nature. Remember last week we talked about how we're bent towards sin. We're not bent towards God. So we're inclined to evil and that continually in the sinful nature. We were helpless and unable to change our course, unable to change our heart, unable to change our very nature. People try to change uh, self-help books and you know, whatever, and they can become a little better here and there, sure, but they cannot change their very nature, the core of who they are. As the Bible says, we are lost in sin. In fact, what does it say? We are dead. <laughs> we are dead in our sins. Dead. That's some graphic language, like circumcision, very graphic, like cutting away, being set free. But now we, we see this, this, neat, this language of, of death. What a desperate situation before Christ, B.C., right? We were spiritually dead. Therefore, we could not love God. We could not obey Him. We could not serve Him and honor Him because we were dead. Think of someone who's physically dead. The corpse laying on the cold slab of the morgue. They have no capacity or power for anything other than being dead. You can ask them all kinds of questions. You can talk to them. You can give them a choice. What would you like? They're going to do nothing but be dead all the time. Hmm. Death masters them completely. What a powerful picture of our spiritual condition, B.C. Hmm. We were spiritually dead, lying on the slab. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, here comes the good news, God made you alive with Christ. And He forgave us all our sins. Hmm. It is no small thing that God has done for us through Jesus. Christianity is not self-improvement. It is not improving one's moral character. Christianity is resurrection from the dead. Hmm. By the power of God. Exiting the kingdom of the devil and darkness and death and being transferred in the kingdom of God of light and life. Radical, radical change is salvation. Some people say, oh, so-and-so got radically saved. Um, everybody gets radically saved. There's no such thing. Of not being radically saved. Now, I know some people seem like they have a, maybe a bigger repentance or, a, <laughs> you know, they had more to turn from. I don't know. But if you truly are saved, it's radical. It's a transformation from the cold slab of death spiritually into life everlasting with Jesus. And this is important for us to grasp this truth, to be reminded of what God has done for us, because when we understand it, it causes us to love God more. It causes us to yield more fully to His will. How could we not? Let's back up in our Bibles from the book of Colossians. Go backwards, you'll see Philippians, and then there's a little book of Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple books back, Ephesians chapter 2. It's the exact same passage, but it's elaborated on a little bit more. So let's read that together. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. To transgress is to cross the line to break the law of God. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's the devil, 
the Spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Okay, We all ultimately were servants of the devil, though we didn't understand that. The Bible says in 1 John that the whole world is under the control of the devil. Right? One day it will be under the control of Jesus, but right now it's not. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Everybody, you, me, everybody, even the Pope, all of us, right? Everybody lived there. And what were we doing as servants of the devil? We were gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature because it dominated us and following its desires and thoughts. That's how we lived. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath one day, heading to hell. But because, here's the good news, but because of... Uh, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. Listen, it is by what? Grace. I got a circle in my Bible. Grace, you have been saved. Mm, what a cool passage, huh? Totally dead. Enslaved unto the sinful nature, but Jesus came along and rose us to life in His mercy and His grace. Okay, two things I want to point out, I want to examine. Number one is, um, the question is, what made us dead in the first place? What made us dead? And number two, what made us alive? Okay, what made us alive? I want to look deeply into these things. First thing, what according to Ephesians and Colossians here made us dead? Sin. Very clear. Our sins and transgressions. Sin brings spiritual death. We're separated from God. We're inclined to evil and that continually, that's our very nature. It controls us and consumes us and separates us from God. So sin makes us spiritually dead corpses on the slab, spiritually. Right There we are, lying. And the destiny of the spiritual uh, dead is, is hell and eternal death. Thus the severity of the situation. We can never downplay this. <laughs> That's the severity of the situation. And we know that sin affects us all. right? Not just like, well, some of us. <laughs> Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody! Everybody! So sin is falling short of God's glorious standard of living. It's missing the mark. Sin is transgressing, it's breaking the law of God, and sin makes us dead spiritually. Okay, very clear. Number two, what makes us alive in Christ? What makes us alive and what makes us forgiven of all our sin? How does this come to be, this spiritual resurrection? Well, if you've been around church any length of time, you know it's Jesus, right? Yeah, of course. He's always the answer. Jesus. It's verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, right? Rooted and grounded. It's receiving Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith is the key that unlocks forgiveness of sins. Life everlasting and brings you from death to life. Faith in Jesus is the key. Yeah. Always remember that true faith it always is connected to repentance. It can never, ever be separated. To truly have faith is, means to repent. You turn from your sins and you follow after Jesus. To truly repent means you have faith. They're one and the same. They're one and the, they, they, they go together, a necessity. And of course, we have to continue to live in Him. It's not a one-time, yes, give me Jesus, and then I'll do whatever I want. Right? No, it's a yes, give me Jesus, and I just keep on serving Him. For the rest of my days. Okay, so faith in Jesus is the key that brings resurrection from the dead off the slab into the kingdom of God as children of God, forgiven of all our sins. Question though, how do we come to faith in Christ when we're dead? How do we receive him and say, yes, give me Jesus, I want to be saved. How do we receive him into our lives when we are a corpse laying there spiritually who can do absolutely nothing for himself? Because I can talk to the dead guy, would you like uh, you know, beans and rice? Or would you like, uh, what would you like? He can't choose, he cannot make a choice for he is dead. So how can we spiritually being dead then, who have no capacity for anything other than sin and death, how can we say yes to Jesus? 
Mm. Well, actually, we cannot in that state. We often say, maybe you've said it, and it's not bad to say it, but we often say, well, I found Jesus, you know, in 1965 or whatever, right? I found Jesus. And there's a sense which is partially true, but there's a sense which is not true. You didn't find Jesus because you weren't looking for him because you were dead. The people don't look for God. <laughs> they can't. Now, you may have been looking for something. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no said Anyway, I just love to quote that song, Mick Jagger, because that's the way of the world. They try to try, but they can't. But they're looking. But you were not looking for God because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hmm. Book of Romans tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. No human being actually in their deadened state is seeking after God. They're not. They're just dead. So if we can't seek God, who does the seeking? Hey, if we can't seek God, who does the seeking? Remember when Jesus said he left the 99 on the hill and went after that one lost sinner. God does the seeking. And we were dead. And he sought us out. He pursued us. He found us. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. And he found me kicking around in our sin and our rebellion. Lost and blind and dead, a corpse. <coughs> in that scripture in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4 that we were reading, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace. Grace, you have been saved. Mm -hmm. What is God's grace? Remember, it's the favor of God we don't deserve. The undeserved favor of God. Boy, we don't deserve it, but God says, I'm going to give you my favor. I'm going to give you my mercy. Okay, so faith is the key. Faith is the key to forgiveness and eternal life and resurrection from the dead. Faith in Jesus. But God's grace comes before faith and enables us to sit up off the cold slab as a corpse and make a decision. We're dead, and He, by His grace, empowers us supernaturally to sit up. We're not really alive yet. We're still a dead corpse. But there's a sense in which we have an awakening going on in the soul, and now I can see Jesus. Now I can see my sin. I can see the key. Do I want the key? Do I want to put my faith in Christ? Or do I want to slap the key away from God and lay back down and just keep being a corpse? What do I want to do? Hmm. And there in Ephesians as well, if we read on a little bit further in verse 8, it said, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Notice which came first, grace or faith? <laughs> grace. It's always grace. At the very beginning of Colossians, when he writes and greets them, he says, grace and peace to you. Right? <laughs> very common, but it's never peace first. It's always grace. It's the grace of God that leads us to Jesus and to, to forgiveness and Eternal life. So here we see first, grace comes to us first, and then he enables us to have faith if we so desire it. Hmm. Grace first, then faith. An awakening. Hmm. Sometimes we mistake that for salvation in the church. It's not salvation. But sometimes it looks like it. People start to seek God. Ah, oh, and you go back, yeah, but I did seek God. Well, that would be it first. First, God awakened you. He found you. And then as you begin to stir your soul and open your eyes, you go, oh, yeah, I want, I pursued Jesus. <laughs> and then you can come into faith, saving faith, or you can lay back down as a corpse. God's big into choice. God lets us choose. Hmm. Jesus said in John 6.44, let me read that to you, great for your notes there, John 6.44, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me 
draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He says, nobody can come to faith in me unless God the Father draws them to Jesus. Because they're dead. They can't come alive. So the Father draws them. He awakens them and presents them with a choice to choose Jesus or to reject him. Some theology would say that Jesus, uh, the Father only draws some people to Jesus, but not all people. It's called limited atonement. And it's not biblical. Because my Bible says that God so loved the or not just some of the world. In Second Peter 3.9 says, It's not God's will that any should perish, but all to come to repentance. This is the desire of God. Now, not all are going to because they have a choice. He lets them. You want Jesus, you get him. You don't want him, you don't have to have him. He drags nobody kicking and screaming to heaven. So therefore, I think a better theology, a better doctrine, is that God awakens and calls every human being on the planet at one time or another in their life. Awakens them so they can sit up on the slab and make a choice. Lie back down or come to life. Because God is loving. And God is merciful and gracious. And he awakens the dead sinner when we weren't even looking for him. Now, how does God awaken? There's a various means in which God does this because he's just awesome. But one, the book of Romans tells us in Romans chapter 1, that God will awaken people and call them to himself through creation itself. Think about that guy on that little desert island over there, wherever he is, he never heard of Jesus, never had a Bible or a missionary. Yeah, but he could look at the wind and the waves and the creation and go, whoa, there's a design here. There must be a designer. And then if they respond to that grace that God is giving them through the, the general revelation of creation, it's called general revelation, a general unveiling of who God is. If they respond to that, then God will give them a little more, a little more, and pretty soon a missionary will row up on the beach. I don't know. Somehow they're going to find out about Jesus. Another way in which God draws people to Christ is he appeals to the conscience of every human being. We have a conscience, right? Romans chapter 2 talks about how God wrote on every person's heart his law. His law. Even those who aren't Jews, who never got the law of God, they still know about rights and wrongs. Secular world today knows we have a conscience. They talk about the conscience. Where do they think that came from? The amoebas out of the goo when we evolved? I don't think so, right? The knowledge innately in the soul about what is right and wrong comes from God who wrote it on our hearts. Now we can sear our consciences toward that and completely ignore it, which is what most people do. But if we respond to that calling of God through the conscious and we say, look at me, I'm doing wrong things. Oh God, is there a remedy? He's going to show us Jesus eventually somehow through that. How else does God call people to Jesus? Well, there's this wonderful thing we call the Bible. This is called specific revelation of God. Specifically, he speaks to us through the word of God, through his son, Jesus. He speaks to us through the church, through you at work, at school, at home, wherever you go. We are the bearers of the good news of Jesus. And when you give the gospel to somebody, then God can use that to awaken them and draw them to Christ. Hmm. Faith comes from hearing the word of God, remember, and choosing to believe it. Somehow in all this, the Holy Spirit is the main ingredient. He's the main ingredient. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and you found out they were stone cold dead on the slab and didn't pay any attention to you? Mm. I remember one individual, I was out working, helping him with a project, and somehow we led to it and I just told him all about Jesus and forgiveness of sins. He stared at me with a blank, glazed over look. I was done and he was like, oh, okay, and he went on with something else. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I just gave you the, the key to eternal life and forgiveness of sins. You won't get to go to hell. And you just dismiss it with a word, without a word. Because he's on the slab, stone cold dead. He had no capacity for anything other than being dead. So the gospel meant nothing to him. Couldn't penetrate through. But then I prayed for him when I left. And I'm still praying for him today. I don't know. I think he's still pretty dead. But somehow our prayers are part of this too. I don't know. But I think we give the gospel to those who are dead and either sometimes we give it and God's in the middle of awakening them and they're like, yeah. Or they're like, whatever. But you keep praying and that seed becomes something that sprouts one day. Right? 
We don't know. Our job is just to be faithful and do what God tells us. We can't, we're not the Holy Spirit. We don't save anybody, but let's be faithful in our part. But he does call, but somehow our prayers are part of this too, right? I don't know how God works at all, but he wants us to pray. So pray for the awakening of the dead, right? Pray for them. We're praying for revival in Red Bluff. Revival is basically when the Holy Spirit doesn't just waken a few people here and there, but he wakens a town. He awakens a, a, a county. He awakens a land. That's why they call it the beginning of our nation in the early 1700s. We had what was called the Great Awakening. I think they still teach it in schools. They used to. I don't know. Even the secular world had to acknowledge that something was going on in the church in the early 1700s. They didn't know what it was, but it was Jesus awakening people. <laughs> and they're coming to faith. Now remember, this awakening is not salvation. It's not saving faith but the corpse gets to sit up and make a choice. Hmm. Enabling, the divine enabling to make a choice. Life or death. It's all God's grace, huh? That we didn't deserve, and he seeks us out. So salvation really begins with his grace and is carried on with his grace. And yet there's a choice in there somewhere. Is there anybody who might feel an awakening in their soul this morning? And you felt God you felt God calling you, but maybe you haven't been responding, or maybe you're starting to respond. Where are you today? What is God saying to you? And if you if you know that He's calling you, but you haven't been responding, well then just say yeah, right? Yes, Lord. Right, even right now, we're gonna pray at the end of the sermon like we always do, but even right now, say yes, Jesus. Yes, I surrender all. I surrender all right now. Don't wait. The theological term for this glorious grace is called prevenient. That's a cool word. Prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before salvation to awaken the dead <laughs> and give us a choice. Hmm. Those who say yes come off the slab into life, they are called the elect. They are called the chosen. They are the predestined. If you hear those words in Scripture, they're wonderful words. But they are those who have said yes to the calling of God on their life. Foreknown from all eternity past, the elect, the predestined. So you want to be the predestined, say yes to Jesus. If you don't say yes, you're not the predestined. But if you want to change your mind and say yes, then you're the predestined. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Right? New life, born again. We now have a new nature. The, the sinful nature has been circumcised, so now I can love God. Now I can seek Him. Now I can please Him. And I love the last part, for He forgave us all our sins. Mm. Did He forgive us some of our sins? I got all circled in my Bible. I want to remind myself, all sins have been forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> People say, well, I don't know, God can't forgive me. My sins were pretty bad. Well, they were pretty bad, but God will still forgive you because he already died for them. He already did. Stop monkeying around. Get, you know, receive the gift of forgiveness. The Bible talks about forgiveness of sins in some very vivid and wonderful terms. I can't give them all to you. It'd be a whole sermon in itself, but I love the uh, Psalm 103 says that he takes our sins as far as the east is from the west, right? I always like that one. And he's in Micah chapter 7. It says that he tramples them under his feet and then, and then uh, throws them in the depths of the sea. Huh. Cool picture. I found a new picture that I probably just was like, you ever read the Bible? And you're like, oh, I think I've never read that before, right? <laughs> a new thing is Isaiah 44, 22 for your notes. Isaiah 44, 22, but to quote it loosely, he says that he, he has swept away our sins, right? Swept away our transgressions like a cloud. You ever see a cloud in the sky and you look up a few minutes later? Oh, it's not, it's not there. Where'd it go? The Lord sweeps it away like a mist that is there, it says, and then is swept away by the wind. <laughs> he is Sweeping away our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Nothing greater than knowing your sins have been swept away by the grace of God. Right? Nothing, nothing better. Make sure you live there all the time. Verse 14. 
So he forgave us all our sins, and having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. All right. You can read this and say, that sounds really cool, but I don't know what it means. Right? <laughs> I've met it, read it many times and kind of understood it, and that's what I love about preaching verse by verse is it makes me really sit down and study it out. i got to have something to tell you guys, right? So here we go. Once we've been awakened, once we've said yes to Jesus, once he's risen us to life and forgiven us all our sins, then we see something happening here. Yeah. I think this, as the, the NIV calls it, a written code, is taken away. I think it's that which proves us guilty of sin is taken away and nailed to the cross. Now, I, I brought out like all my Bibles I got, and I looked at this verse in all different translations and went to the original language and tried to figure out if there's another way it could be said. It says the written code in my uh, slightly older NIV, which honestly, I don't know what that means. The written code. Mm, I kind of might be getting it. Maybe it's a law, but I'm not sure. Uh, if you've got a King James Version or a New King James, it says handwriting of requirements. Well, there you go. It's very clear, right? No, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> the handwriting of requirements. Well, I'm glad it's gone, but I don't know what it was. Uh, another uh, translation said the bond. Oh, okay. I still, don't, I, don't, I still don't know what that means. I found the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, said certificate of debt. And I was like, ooh. Certificate of debt. My debt of sin, the certificate. Okay, I kind of get that a little bit. Then it went to the Living Bible, and that's one of those Bibles I really like and kind of really don't like. Sometimes I read it, and I'm like, I don't know. I think, yeah. And then other times I'm like, oh, that helps. <laughs> so I think it has its place. But the Living Bible, I think, was right on it, actually. It said this. It says, um, a list of sins and commandments that I have not kept. Hmm. A list of sins and commandments that I have not kept is taken away and nailed to the cross. Ooh, now I kind of understand that one. Thank you, Lord. And I got a new, uh, if you look at the new NIV, the updated version, it says, um, charge of your legal indebtedness. Uh, that's pretty good, I think. That's better than the older NIV. Charge of your legal indebtedness. So I think it's a list of sins committed, written down, has been, been taken away. That sounds awesome. Now, apparently, as I, I learned and kept studying, in Paul's day when he wrote this, people understood this a little better than we, we, we do. Um, because anybody who was in debt was given a handwritten certificate of indebtedness. Hmm. Given to the one borrowing from the lender. Right? So they wrote out by hand a document that detailed all that they owed. You owe this and this and this and this, you better pay it back. Right? And it hung over their head until the debt was paid. Hmm. So in view of this, it would seem that the Apostle Paul is saying here that each one of us has written charges against us. Hmm. There are legal written charges that write out and spell out our moral debt before God. Hmm. A list of our sins, if you will, and commandments that we have broken. Wow. Proof, evidence of our guilt. In debt before God. Yeah, wow. That we broke the law of God. Hmm. And it's recorded. There you go. Guilty. What's the law of God if we broke it? What's the law? If you ask any good Jew, he'd probably tell you that it is the Torah. The, the law. Uh, the Torah means law. It's the uh, first five books of Moses. Uh, the Pentateuch. First five books that we have in our Bibles. Okay, it's called the law of God. And in the law of God, it has the complete um, law. So we've got the moral law. Things are right, things are wrong before God, like the Ten Commandments and some various others. We've got the dietary laws. You can't eat bats and eels but, and, and pigs, but you can't eat this and that and the other thing, right? If, if you're a Jew, those, those mattered. There's ceremonial laws. If you touch this or do that, you're unclean, can't go to church for this amount of time or whatever. So there's all these different laws. And uh, there were civic laws to govern the nation and criminals and so forth. Hmm. Now, some people feel that this written code this of indebt indebtedness that was taken away is actually the law of God, and, and in part they're correct, in part they're not. Let me explain. But some people think it's the law itself. Um, the New Testament does tell us that we're no longer under law, but we're under what? Grace, right? Yeah. It's Romans 6.14 for your notes. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. But I cringe at this sometimes because people love to abuse this. 
<laughs> they use it as a little license to sin. I've heard Christians say, well, yeah, you can't judge me for that. I'm under grace, right? I mean, it's an excuse for my bad language and my bad behavior. Oh, I'm just under grace. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> as if it's a license to sin. That's not what it means, okay? If you're under God's grace and no longer the law, it's not a license to sin. No, no, no. Hmm. Now, there's certain portions of the law we certainly are no longer under. You're not underneath the dietary portion, so enjoy your pork after, after church. It's all right. Eat your bats and your eels. It's okay. It's not going to be tasty, but you can eat them. The ceremonial stuff. You had a bloody nose this morning. You touched blood. You can still come to church, but you couldn't in the Old Covenant. You were unclean, right? <laughs> so those don't apply to us. They didn't pass from the Old Testament into the New Testament. But what did pass? What of the law passed from the Old Covenant into the New Testament? Well, there's a little list called the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Well, actually, nine of them passed from the Old Testament into the New and were all repeated by the apostles. They are applicable to us. The one that didn't would be the Sabbath commandment. We're actually going to talk about that next week, Lord willing, because Jesus fulfilled that and he is our glorious rest. Hmm. But those nine others made it into the New Covenant and we are still bound by them. We call that the law of Christ. Paul says, I'm under the law of Christ. Okay, so we're still underneath the moral law of God. You better believe it. What's number six? You shall not murder. Oh, I can kill anyone I want because I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I know. Of course not. You can't be killing people. We're still bound by that. Same with adultery and stealing and lying and blaspheming and all these things, right? We're still underneath the law of Christ. This would be the moral law passed in the new covenant. Hmm. But the Bible still says, I am no longer under Law, but under grace. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means this. Since I've been forgiven of my sin, since my debt was paid by Jesus, I'm no longer underneath the condemnation of the law. Hmm. I'm no longer underneath the condemning power of the law. Did you know the law condemns us? Look at the Ten Commandments. In fact, some people like to use it for evangelism. Hey, have you ever lied? <laughs> well, yeah. Right? Well, that means you're a lawbreaker. You're a liar. You broke one of the God's laws. You're guilty. So the law, if somebody looks at it like, oh, yeah, I have lied. I've stolen. I've, I've lusted. I've uh, adultery. I'm, oh, my goodness. I, I broke almost all the Ten Commandments. And it condemns me. The law says I am a guilty sinner. that I've broken, I've transgressed the law of God. It, it condemns me, right? It condemns me. But you know what the law can't do? The law can't forgive me. The law can't save me. The law can't wash away my sins and give me new life and raise me from dead. It just says you're dead and you're guilty. There you go. Hmm. The law was not enough. If the law wasn't enough, there would be no Savior. There would be no need for Jesus. He would have never have come. He got the law good enough. But the law was never good enough. In fact, it was put in place to show us we're guilty sinners and in need of a Savior. Yeah. yeah. So the law was there, but then God came to us through the person of Jesus. So the law came through Moses, but through Jesus came grace and truth. Grace came to us that we don't deserve through Jesus. And he paid my debt. He paid for my sin. He rose from the dead. And because I'm forgiven, I'm no longer underneath the condemnation of the law. Let me read to you Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter 1. You want to write this down for your notes. That's why we can declare, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> the law is condemning me, condemning me, condemning me. But then I got washed and cleansed and forgiven and risen from the dead. Right? Now, the law can't condemn me anymore because I'm forgiven and washed and cleansed. <laughs> I'm saved because Jesus paid my debt already. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law, the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Hmm. So I think we're no longer under law, under the condemnation of the law, because we live in grace and forgiveness. But it's certainly no license to sin. Verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. 
Thank you, Lord. Now, technically speaking, what was nailed to the cross was not the law. Kind of, sort of, but not technically speaking. Let me, let me explain. It's not actually the law. Because remember, the law is good and holy, and we need the law to show us we're sinners. Hmm. We need the moral law of Christ to guide us as Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to what? Fulfill them. He's the fulfillment of all that the Bible of the Old Testament was pointing to. So if he didn't abolish it, that means it's still here. Therefore, he didn't nail it to the cross and get rid of it. We still need the law. It's still good. But we're just no longer under its condemnation because Jesus took that written notice of our sins and took it with himself to the cross. So the written charges against us, they were taken away and nailed to the cross. But it wasn't the law itself, it was the written notice of our guilt. Okay. It was that written notice that we are debtors and we are sinful. It's proof, if you will, of our sin. And Jesus took it away. It's the recording of all the sins that, that we have committed. Huh? And it brings shame, right? When that's hanging over our heads, that brings shame and guilt. But it can only be removed when the debt is paid and Jesus paid our debt. When it says that he took these away and he nailed them to the cross, in my mind I pictured the cross empty with little nails on it with little, little pieces of paper, had all my sins on it, nailed to the cross. That's not right. I was incorrect when I first began to think that. But as I prayed and, and gone over then, I felt like God revealed to me the picture. So don't picture that, because the cross wasn't empty. <laughs> the cross was full of Jesus. So your written notice and charges of your legal debt and guilt and mine and the sin of all the world, Jesus gathered up in his magnificent arms and held to his chest as he was crucified. So our legal notices of guilt and shame, Jesus took them away from us, and they were nailed through him to the cross paying for our debt. Blessed be his holy name forever and ever, forever and ever. Hmm. Verse 15, our last verse, yet there's still quite a bit in that verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, I like that, triumphing over them by the cross. Who are these powers? Who are these authorities? Well, they're none other than the devil himself and his fallen angels, the, the demonic world that hate God. So here's, here's the deal, in case you didn't know. They hate God. Well, why are they after us? What's going on with their motive? They hate God because they lost heaven. They're very angry and wicked and sinful. And why are they messing with us? Because it's the only way to get to God. Because they know that God so loved the world. They can't hurt God. He's God. But they can hurt God by hurting those he loves and drawing people away from Jesus and keeping him slave, dead on the slab, not trusting in Christ. So this demonic world, these are the, the, the powers and authorities. And what does it say? It says that Jesus disarmed them. Disarmed them. What does it mean to disarm someone? It means you take away their weapons. They don't have any weapons to fight with. They've been disarmed. Interesting. Well, what is the devil armed with? Well, I think it's right off the heels of verse 14. I think the devil is armed with the written charges against us. I think he holds those written charges of all our wickedness in his hands because who runs the world? The devil. First John tells us that the whole world is subject to the devil. He's the, he's the boss until Jesus returns. Now, he's not the boss in our hearts and minds as we surrender to the kingdom of Christ. But the rest of the world, he owns it. So there's a sense in which he has in his greedy little hands all the written notices. It's the proof of our guilt and he hangs it over our head, and he accuses us, right? He's the accuser. That's another name for the devil, for Satan. And he enslaves us because he holds the title deed to mankind. Hmm. The title deed Adam had, but he gave it up after the garden. He had the title deed to the earth. He owned the earth too. He gave that up to the devil. So, there's, so man, we don't, we don't get it. Right now the devil has it all. So he owns the world, and he keeps everyone bound into his kingdom. Hmm. 
The souls belong to him, if you will. But then Jesus came along. <laughs> then Jesus came along. And then the cross happened. <laughs> and he gathered up all the written charges from the devil's hand. And he put them on himself at the cross. <laughs> Paying our debt. And in doing so, he single-handedly disarmed the devil and all his angels. Hmm. That means that the devil can't hold you. He can't imprison you. He can't enslave you unless you want him to. The devil still has power, sure, a whole lot of power. Huh? Only when you believe his lies. He will still lie to you. He will still accuse you. He points a gun at you. Oh, I thought he was disarmed. Yeah, he points a gun, but there's no bullets in it. He doesn't have the ammo, right? What good is a gun if it don't have any bullets? Jesus took the bullets away. But he will point that gun at you nonetheless. And if he can convince you that it's loaded, you will do what he says. And he will deceive you and keep you captive. Mm. So he has power only when his lies are believed. But he really has been disarmed, though, because when you are awakened off the slab and you're sitting upright, and Jesus says, the devil can't hold you no more. Do you want my son, Jesus, or do you want to go back to death? The choice is yours. I don't want anybody to ever go back to death, but some people seem to. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. A public spectacle. The, the cross was public. Everybody could see it. He was even high and lifted up for everybody to look at, and people could walk by and see the public spectacle. And I think that's, for you and me, though, we can look back at that and say, that's where Jesus set me free, right? <laughs> that's where the devil was destroyed, right then and there. That's where he triumphed over my enemy. It's a public spectacle for the world to see. That's why we keep the cross around to point at. <laughs> I am no longer bound to the enemy. I'm set free. Yeah. But the devil will try to convince you he still holds the legal notice against you. And he's deceived the world. Right? How many people right now are enslaved and totally dead? And the devil... He's, he's, already, he's deceived them. But they go along with it because they're dead. They don't, they don't want God anyway. Where are you this morning? What has God said through three little verses? <laughs> Are you living triumphantly in Christ? Set free, alive, all your sins forgiven? Or are you struggling in sin? Are you not walking with Jesus as you should? The Bible tells us to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. But you have to submit yourself to God first. And then the devil won't have any hold on you. Does he have a hold on you this morning? Once you pray with me, and like we sang, I surrender all, once you surrender anything that's holding you back from Jesus right now. Father God in heaven, We give you praise and thanksgiving for the blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, Savior of our souls, the Rescuer, the Redeemer. We thank you for your grace that found us dead on the slab and by your great power caused us to sit up and open the eyes as you called us, called us, and then we can make a choice. Lord, if there's anybody who needs to make a choice for you right now, help them to say, yes, Jesus. Forgive me, Jesus. 
I leave my sin behind. And I follow you, Jesus, right now. And Lord, if there's any of your people who are feeling bound by the devil and caught up in his lies, help them, Lord, to surrender all they have to you right this moment. To confess any sin. And then know that they are set free. And the devil has nothing on them. And that they can live in victory right now. Right now. So help them, Lord. Anybody confess those sins. Listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he saying to you? Thank you, Jesus, for taking that written charge and holding it on the cross for us. And in doing so, thank you for displaying your power and single-handedly taking all the weapons away from the devil, Lord. Help us to not believe his lies. For the power is in your hands, Jesus. And when we serve you, we can overcome. Yes, Lord, thank you. Give your people power. Give them power, Jesus. It's there. It's there. Let us not think the devil has got any bullets in his gun, but dismiss him in the name of Jesus and reject those lies and reject those temptations and reject the foolishness and focus on you, Jesus. Bless your people. Guard them. Shield them, and let us live in victory. In Christ we pray. For the sake of your name, we pray these things. Amen.